Hey everybody, before we get started today, I wanted to share a few words with Adam Levin, classical guitarist, artistic director of the University of Rhode Island Guitar Festival, chamber musician, and music activist, because he is getting ready to present the fifth annual University of Rhode Island Guitar Fest coming up September 25th through the 27th, and it is 100% online this year. Adam, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. So 100% virtual this year. Tell me, how did the transition go? Complex question for a complex time. Uh, the long answer is chapters long. The short answer is it's been uh, quite easy, actually. With this flip of a switch, we're all able to sign on and tune into some really great music. And everyone around the world can hear it. Yeah, it's truly an international event with internationally recognized artists. So it's awesome. a great pairing. Which, who are you really looking forward to presenting this year? Okay, I'm going to take one big breath and tell you what I like. So Friday night, we're going to launch this festival with Irish guitarist, Brahms guitarist, eight string guitarist, Redmond O'Toole, followed by American blues guitarist, Corey Harris, also MacArthur Genius Award recipient. Uh, then that evening, we're moving on to versatile power pack guitarist, Davis Lockie and friends. Then we shift to Saturday uh, afternoon we'll, where we will hear from the winner of the Rising Stars virtual competition, Bok Young Bion from South Korea and French Phenom and winner of the Guitar Foundation of America competition, Raphael Fiutre. And then that evening we will hear my very own chamber music group, Duo Sonidos with violinist William Knuth. And then the other half of the concert will be with the, uh, the very sensational Elliot Fisk and Mexican virtuosa Zaira Meneses and their daughter Raquel Fisk on classical piano. The three of them should be a real treat to hear. To Sunday afternoon with a very special guitarist Luther Enloe. And then at, in the evening, we will hear to culminate the festival um, Yakuba Sissoko on Kora, a 21-string harp, and then Derek Gripper from South Africa, uh, translating some of the greatest Kora works onto six-string guitar. So it's really a fabulous uh, concert series, in addition to an education platform uh, that students and guitar aficionados can take part in. Okay, so if a more than science listener wants to sign up, where do they go? How do they do it? Um, it's a really beautiful uh, webpage, uriguitarfestival.org forward slash registration. It's all free concerts. You can and then participate in the master classes uh, as an active participant or just listen in as an auditor. Or you can just sign up to attend a concert for free. And if you shall decide to donate, that is an option as well. Nice. Okay. So this is the fifth annual University of Rhode Island Guitar Fest. It's the third that I've had the pleasure to be a part of. Uh, why is it important to you to get the performers that you bring to the Guitar Festival onto the More Art and Science podcast? So first and foremost, Dan, you're asking the important questions. So it's on our backs as artists to responsibly answer that for the next generation. Um, and also for ourselves, it's a, 
uh, difficult time, a moment of reflection in which uh, we can assess, reassess our trajectory as artists and also uh, set up a path for those younger than us and who are uh, forging a career in the arts. Nice. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to these great artists and um, looking forward to seeing you virtually on September 25th. Thanks, Dan. Looking forward to seeing you at the festival as well and all of you listeners out there. I'll see you then. Excellent. Hello, this is Dan Chagru, and welcome to the More Art Than Science podcast, where I explore the relationship between music and commerce by talking to musicians, mostly guitarists, about how they got their start and how they make ends meet. Today's guests on the More Art Than Science podcast has a unique perspective on how musicians make ends meet because she is not only a musician, but she has also created a business that advises musicians on how to make ends meet. Patricia Price is a pianist, a musical career strategist, a presenter, and the managing director of 8VA Consultancy. 8VA Consultancy, her main gig, has worked with some of the biggest names in classical music, including Long Long and Pablo Sainz Villegas. Patricia Price, welcome to the More Art Than Science podcast. Thank you, Dan. So good to speak with you. It's, it's really great to meet you. So I'd, I'd love to start by finding out a little bit about young Patricia Price. How did you originally get into music when, um, you know, I, I, mean, I mean, you're still young, but I mean, as a, as a young I was going girl. to correct you right oh, away. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but in your family when you were growing up, what was your first exposure to music? How did you first get interested in it and into it? Sure, yeah. I uh, read music before I read words, like like so many classical musicians. I started out very young. There's a little bit of argument whether I started the piano at three or four. I like to go to three because that's earlier than Beethoven. Right. Uh, so I, I studied piano growing up pretty nonstop in high school. That was my primary extracurricular activity. When you were three, was it your was it your mom, your dad, who was you know dragging you, kicking and screaming to the piano, or were you just sort of drawn to it yourself? Or, I mean, my parents were very good about having it be something I loved in my life. So it was never a burden. They, I had to go to the piano for thirty minutes a day, but I could play whatever I wanted, and I got a cookie afterwards. I so it, it, we had a neighbor that was a piano teacher, so. It was always something I learned to love rather than an obligation. Yeah, more carrot than stick. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I love it. Yeah. And so, do, and so, do you remember? Um, you know, after what age did you start to hear stuff that you thought, you know, that that sort of inspired you to continue to play or play more or make a life with music? Sure. I in high school, that is probably when I took off as far as being pretty disciplined about it and having it be part of my future life yeah. thinking about what i wanted to major in and in college and yeah. how i wanted to to look at it in the future um i i always accompany choirs and and sometimes that would turn into full days and tours with with them so i realized that that was i was happiest doing doing right. and having that as a big part of my life yeah, so just the playing itself brought a sense of satisfaction or, or some sort of fulfillment, singing. 
And the friends at that age too. Friends, yeah, nice. Okay. And any particular performance, performer, or recording that you remember as being seminal and informative? I all the great all the great pianists. Um, I I listened to. I think in those days, I probably tried to model my uh, piano playing yeah. after other pianists. So I would be learning a piece of repertoire and listen to various recordings of yeah. Bronfman, yeah. Amory McDermott, all of these wonderful pianists that I'm lucky to know now. Uh, but I, I think I, I started out really trying to absorb what they were doing and how I could, could almost mimic what they were doing. Yeah. Um, was it like a, was it um, the type of uh, setup where you had the um, CD or record player or tape or whatever you were using right next to you and you would like, you know, rewind, play a passage like, you know, eight seconds and then try to play it and then play, hear them and then play? Oh, not that bad. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's, how, I, that's how I learned, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that probably, I'm, I'm a terrible, I, I sight read very, very well. I've always um, been a great sight, sight reader almost to my detriment because my ear isn't as good. Uh -huh. uh, so if you ask me to, to jam, I'm not a good bar jammer or request. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you need the paper in front of you or, or the screen, yeah. Yes, okay. yeah, so put anything in front of me. And, yeah. and, now, and before you got into 8VA, did you get a chance to record? Do you have anything like in a personal archive? Um, I do, I do, there are videos. There are, yes, there are, are, I was before the YouTube generation, thank goodness. Okay. So I don't have it publicly posted and I won't. <laughs> okay, but, well, that answers that question. <laughs> I love to do an outro and I know, you know, you're, you're the first, uh, I mean, you are a musician, anyone who, who plays is a musician, um, but, um, mo you know, everyone else I've had on the show, I've done an outro with whatever their favorite track is. Um, the, and so I was going to ask you that, but I guess the fair enough question. The answer is no, you won't be releasing that publicly. That's fine. Um, 15, 15, 16 year old Trish does not allow I see. Okay. to be distributed. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. So I'm, I'm very curious at, at what point did you make the transition from, you know, player to business person and, and you know, and pre pre presenter PR marketing of music? Sure. Yeah, I really always hated performing. Actually, I had terrible performance anxiety, which can go two ways. It can go the way that I realize this is this is not good for me. I don't enjoy it. I get sweaty. <laughs> all of these things. I get a stomach ache. All of those things that um, you know aren't enjoyable and. Yep can make you collapse as a performer. I was a very inconsistent performer. So sometimes I would have brilliant performances because I was living in that extreme of excitement mm -hmm. and being really in tune with my mind. And then I would have other performances where I have terrible memory slips. Yeah. But some of the great performers have have the same experience. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's almost part and parcel, I would think, of the, of the profession. I mean, and, and, and so when you did, when you had the, the ones that you would consider great, did you have a high afterwards? Did you get the, or was that also missing and sort of part of the decision to, to leave? Yes. Yeah. 
I, I would say that with my great performances, that that's with an audience. And when you have that entire exchange where you know you've okay. so well and you've communicated something that you can't communicate in any other way. Yeah. Or you, yeah. That you only can do with music, connect in yeah. that way. So, of course, there's a high. But I also never really wanted to be a performer as far as my profession. I pursued it and kept on going through undergraduate as a piano performance major because I wanted music to be the focus of my life and I couldn't imagine not taking all of those courses. Mm -hmm. But I was also a philosophy major. Uh, so I, I always knew that I'd probably get a master's in something else uh, and and go into some sort of other profession. I have a, a brother who is a superb violinist, went to New England Conservatory, was the associate concert master to, of the Spokane Symphony for a long time. And he's a superior court judge now. So we have a history in our family of having a little bit of the yin and yang of our Yeah. Our yeah. yeah. Would you say, and I, I should actually interview him as well, but I, I'm curious, if, has he mentioned that the what he learned as a violinist has informed how he is as a judge in any way, shape, or form? Is Interesting. I, I think all of us who've gone through the performance disciplined root learn a lot about staying calm in a crisis mm -hmm. and keeping your mind measured and making decisions and continuing forward uh, in in a high intensity situation so I would imagine that's the case for him I think he he he's brilliant and excels at whatever he, he does so uh, well, yeah my sister too. It's very nice. <laughs> I'm his best quality. <laughs> I'm his best quality. I'll be sure to send him the podcast. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> flip, yeah. Um, okay. So so uh, so very cool. So 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 you sort of make a decision that the the, the pre jitters are maybe not worth it, and you 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 want to you still want music as part of your life. Um, so you pursue an MBA. I understand. Yes. Yes, yeah. And, and then from there on, on to, well, a couple of steps uh, to where you are now with APA Music Consultancy. And Generally, yes, I, I was lucky. I studied abroad in Vienna, which was very formative for me. Nice. And, and then I returned, I started, in, during undergrad, I studied in Vienna, and then I returned with a Fulbright assistantship uh, after undergrad. So kept up with piano performance. And then I started in the record industry as my first job back to the States. So I didn't, I looked at, at being a music educator and I, I ended up in the record industry as my first job. Mm -hmm. They would have me really, <laughs> if I'm going to be honest about it. You know, it was that, that awkward nerve wracking time of life where you hope that you don't have to live in your parents' basement forever. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what, so what was the first gig in the, in the record industry? What was that? I was an assistant product manager, oh. but I, I started uh, working in the record industry in about 2005. So at a time when the record industry was really compressing and I was willing to work really hard for a lower amount of pay because I loved what I was doing and I didn't, have many obligations to to worry about. I just wanted to learn. So as 
the industry compressed and compressed, I found myself at running the classical division of a, a major distributor pretty early on. Okay. When you say record industry, I mean, you're, you're, I assume you mean CDs, first of all. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In 2005. Yeah. So, and, and at that, and I'm actually not sure what a product manager's role would be in that, in, in, the, in a company that's either, you said it's distributing CDs or? Yes. So I work for a distributor, and in my position there, they had about 70 classical record labels. So, working with all of the people who ran those labels on what their priority projects were, how to market those records. And then also we had a portfolio of in-house labels. So that was really fun. We would put together repertoire, put together the covers, put together the liner notes, work with the artists on the recordings, editing recordings, executive producer work. So it was extremely hard work, but, uh, a lot of really wonderful experience. Yeah, very cool. Okay, so now I'm, I'm, I'm interested also in the economics. So around 2005, we're, see, I would, you know, we're seeing CD sales start to decline. And it's, it's about, I would say, Napster times, right? And we yeah. have Napster times, yeah. So Napster is still, hasn't gone out of business or if they ever had a business or whatever it was that they were doing. I don't think they were, it's actually a business, but they're off big. <laughs> the, the music was free, I remember that. Um, uh, CD sales are going down, so you're consolidating from many different la labels, I, I guess. Um, how did the economics look, um, you know, when you first started versus when you got out of that gig? J just in terms of uh, sales of CDs and, and especially in terms of um, what percentage or how much an artist would see of that or, revenue. Yeah, you could still make money back then. Mm -hmm. Uh, and as, as, as an artist, you mean? As an artist, as a label, mm -hmm. you had a broad catalog, an interesting catalog. It wasn't streaming so yeah. much then. It yep. was the end of brick and mortar. So I was in it when brick and mortar was starting to go down, when Amazon was coming in as a major force. Yep, Tower Records still existed. Tower Records was just going out of business at, yep. at the tail end of my, my time there. Barnes and Noble was starting to compress their CD shelves. So everybody was, was taking less physical products uh, and, and going into the digital space. And there was a lot of question about whether people should go digital. Yeah. If this was just a trend that would go away and vinyl was coming back. Mm. Right. All of the indie kids loved. Yeah. Well, my son collects vinyl today, so I, we still hear those rumors of vinyl's coming back. I mean, I, I think vinyl is technically vinyl sales are going up, but it's from a very we're talking from a very small starting point or ending point or something. Yes. Um, but, but but if we take two thousand five as an example, so you know back then I I remember CDs seemed rel expensive relatively speaking. They, they weren't the prices never seemed to go down. It was always like around sixteen ninety nine whatever mm -hmm. for a CD. Let's say you know there's a, a, a relatively um, famous uh, classical pianist um, in 2005 with a fairly broad catalog, and they're they're selling a CD for 15 bucks. What percentage are they getting at that point in time? Oh, good question. So, for out of that 15 dollars, say you buy it at Amazon, 15 dollars. The distributor sold it at 10. The 
record label sold it to the distributor probably at six. So then it's about a dollar twenty to make. A dollar twenty to the artist, or a dollar twenty to create. A dollar twenty to actually produce the product. So the, the cost of goods. Oh right. Okay. So so six. And so you've got yeah. you're down to whatever deal the artist worked out, and that would be usually a combination of an advance. This was the time where you still would get, you know, maybe a five thousand dollar advance that your recording costs would be covered, which is much more. Yeah. That's big. Now. Yeah. yeah. And then you would usually get a, a certain percentage after you went through an advance. That would be a normal deal. Okay. Back then. Yeah. So so not very lucrative. I mean, you're saying you could make money, and I don't doubt that, but but not particularly lucrative. I, I would imagine even at that time that the the balance or, or the majority of the money that a a successful pianist is making is coming from performances. Performances. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's still, it's pretty limited. You, you can't make a living off of it. Right. It can be diversified income, another bucket of, of income, but. And are we talking like 60, 40, like 60% would come from performances and maybe 40% from recorded works or was it was recorded works even lower than that in, in 2005? It depends on the artist and what they would do. You know, there are some artists who live in the recording space or the performing space. Yeah. And some who are able to be household names and do both. Yeah. So it, it really depends on the sort of career that an artist was building. There are some lesser known artists who, but they still make very good money on performances. Yeah. Okay. So, so the bulk, greater than 50%, I guess, is where I'll land. Yeah. <laughs> with, with, it sounds like with a, a fairly wide variance, if I'm picking up what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's 2005. If we fast forward to pre-pandemic days, um, you know, here you are in HVA, very successful music consultancy, um, one of the best, if I, if I, if I may say so. <laughs> right, you won't stop me. Um, and uh, I, I'm curious, you know, how has the landscape changed? Um, and, and again, pre-pandemic, so how, how from your perspective, those early days working with the distributor to, you know, not, not, and I don't mean, if we sort of, um, uh, if we qualify out the success that you've had with the consultancy in general for a, for a musician, how has the landscape changed? How, how does the musician, you know, make ends meet in 2000, so say 19 mm -hmm. uh, versus 2005? Yeah, I still believe in recordings, but now I recommend them as a marketing tool in mm -hmm. most cases. You yeah. have your household names, your yo-yos, your long-longs that they make very good money on the recording deals with major labels. But in general, most labels expect artists to come with the recording expenses covered mm -hmm. unless you're a big time artist. And it's used as a marketing tool. It's used as something that you can create excitement around what your latest projects are. It's yep. a great excuse for coverage for features. Yep. So it's, PR. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. So, so, and, and I should mention it in case the listeners don't know that Long Long is a client of APA, right? So you've got one of the biggest in the world. Um, just 
by the way. Um, and for, for Long Long and, and, and I guess for the rest, so even for Long Long you're saying, or, or maybe he would be an exception to this rule where the recording itself is, is it's more than something that's being used to generate buzz in PR, but it's something that people want to, to own, buy, or, or at least stream. Yes, yeah, I, uh, recordings are still so interesting and there's, there's a lot left to be done as far as the way people are thinking about repertoire. Back when it was just physical product, you had to focus your energies on one composer for a disc because that's how you would search. Mm -hmm. Now you can have really good concept albums that people are able to find by searching or dis single tracks that work well. Unfortunately, it's not as conducive to classical tracks with how we organize movements, but yeah. there's, there's still so much to be done and it's a great place for artists to share their voice. Yeah, the, this trend on Spotify, for example, towards, I don't know if they call it, it's something like a lifestyle, like playlists, like, you know, mm -hmm. music to study to, music to sleep to, music to work out to, you know, is, is that something that you see classical music or musicians becoming a part of, or, you know, when you say there's so much more to be done, is that one of those things that classical musicians could or, or should be thinking about? <clears throat> those always do well from a financial perspective. They drive me up the wall. <laughs> much of a snob about classical music to, to think, oh, here's some great background music for cooking. <laughs> and then you have Canon and D or something. It just, it, it's the sort of, yeah. Uh, light listening that I don't do, but a lot of people listen in that way and they need an entrance that they feel safe into classical music. And I am in, I'm very much in favor in finding ways that everyone can get into classical music. Yeah. With just so, a toe in the water. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so it's not necessarily something for you, but it's something that you think is, might be successful with uh, the larger public. Mm -hmm. Or, or a way to, uh, like you said, a way to get people into um, music. Maybe they're listening to that cooking playlist and, and one track stands out and all of a sudden they're going down the rabbit hole in, in the internet and discovering artists who actually play it and, and discovering they like them and then they're making their own playlist. It's all music by that artist. Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, that, that happens for me. I don't do a lot of the Spotify algorithmic playlists, um, but I guess it, it's usually more word of mouth. I'll hear about it, an artist from someone, you know, from another artist and then go down that rabbit hole. The internet allows me to do that. And that's, you know, we, we, I think in the previous episodes, Spotify especially has taken a lot of flack because it's not paying a lot of money to musicians. Um, but as a listener, I mean, it is, it's, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think I can not say it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, 10 bucks a month, every single recording ever made is basically at my fingertips and I can make uh, playlists out of them. Mm -hmm. So that's cool. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And it's, it's probably something sometimes where you would not get to the record store and, and buy a CD if you read a reference in a book, or, for example, but you can now just put it in there and, and get, yeah. get to it right away. And, 
you know, Alex Ross says, listen to this. I got, I honestly read the book and as every song came up, I was able to put it into Spotify and, and essentially listen. Actually, there were some exceptions. There are, there is still some stuff that you can only get on CD. Um, and I ended up buying a lot of that um, just because I, I was, uh, he inspired me to listen to more stuff. Um, Alex Ross, that is. Yeah. So Matt Herman in our office put together a Spotify playlist for that book. If you oh, ever cool. want to go through there you go. All right. So, so what is it called? What's the playlist called? It's. It, I think the rest is noise or whatever it is. But oh, it's, noise. It, okay. it goes along with the book so that you can. Right. I love it. Okay. Beautiful. I'll look that up. Um, could we outro with that? Would that would that be violating some sort of uh, copyright if we outro with that list? Go for it. Okay. <laughs> you know, it doesn't really get into the legal bin until you get into the $100 mark, so. Right, okay, fair enough. <laughs> okay, so cool. So, so, um, I, I'm, so I'm, I'm curious how, you know, in today's economic world, or, or actually let's, did we answer the question pre, so pre-pandemic, um, to what extent has the percentage shifted away from recording music? We said somewhere, depending on the artist, somewhere around 40% in 2005, maybe less, to 2019. Uh, half that, a tenth of that is coming from recorded music versus performances, or what, what are the, in, for the, the artists that you see out there, what, what are the main income streams for, I mean, Performance. Performance. So great, great musician, great household name musicians make significant money. Yeah. Uh, with every performance. And they can, they can usually do 100 performances per year if they're touring really, really actively. You know, we're talking the top of each yeah. instrument. And some instruments have more opportunities than others. Mm -hmm. But you can make very good money if you're at the top of your field as a concert musician mm -hmm. in, in a performance. It would take a year's worth of recorded income to make one performance fee. Yeah, okay, make, okay, that makes sense. That's, that's a good reference. So, so for those people, even the top, the, 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 the elite, right? The top mm -hmm. of the top. Mm -hmm. In the pandemic, what, how, what is happening? What are they doing? How are they making mm -hmm. is I mean, or I imagine, you know, how, how is it? Yeah, the, the story that people really don't want to tell, uh, everyone at any level is suffering with this financially because even if you make high six figures, you, you budget your life around that. And mm -hmm. we all went from a lot to zero pretty much overnight. So no one anticipates that almost every market will go out under from under them and that people will use force majeure globally. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, thankfully for people who are making significant money, hopefully they have savings and, and have been able to, to figure that out, but it's still a, a big, big hit. Yeah. Yeah, for everybody across for the world. everyone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For the for the elite, what was there any success or has there been any success in moving to online platforms as it you know as in like you know live streaming or 
I think they provide opportunities to reach new audiences, to reach different territories. I don't know how successful we've been so far with monetizing that. Right. Yeah. And thankfully, a lot of presenters have decided to engage their communities with online performances. So keeping with some of the soloists and then doing an online recital and using some of that to, to pay for an artist fee. But in general, people have gone down to almost zero for performance fees. Yeah. So there are ways people have of charging tickets. I just, I don't know how successful those will be for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. So I've, I've heard, um, ironically that, that China is one of the countries that's most open right now to business. Have, have, are you seeing that as well? Are you, are you seeing performances coming back in China? So as, I know you've done some work there, yeah. Yes, so we work with the Beijing Music Festival, which is the most important festival in China. They are just announced that they will have 10 days of 24 hours per day music. Wow. <laughs> 240 hours of music. That is a hybrid model of some in-person, some online, some documentaries. Uh, uh, Shanghai Symphony is up and running. Guangzhou Symphony is up and running. China Philharmonic's up and running. Taiwan has been ahead of the pack. Taiwan has done really well. Uh, the Taiwan Philharmonic has had a lot of performances already with pretty full concert halls. Okay. Indoor with audience is just so exciting to me that, that people are getting back. And Europe is is progressing too. It's not full, full concert halls yet, but we will get there. Yeah, so I, I heard one of the musicians, uh, Redmond O'Toole, who's coming to the, or coming virtually to URI, um, he'll, he'll also be on the podcast. And I was excited to hear that he couldn't do one of the times that I proposed because he was gigging live. Um, and I believe that is in Ireland, I'll confirm that with him. But um, coming back, you, you mentioned Shanghai, Guangzhou, Beijing, um, live performances. Th those are in, indoors in concert halls with full seating, in, like not like, you know, every sixth seat blocked off or whatever, or? Some of them have been limited audiences. Okay. But they ha there have been full halls. Uh, Taiwan for sure. There've been a, a couple, they're, they're sold out right away, by the way. So they, yeah. they go online and sold out. They. Um, generally have started out with half full halls and then progressed if they can. And do they mandate mask wearing, just out of curiosity? Yes, but that's that's something that was already part of Asian culture, so it just hasn't right. been a large adjustment for them. Yeah. If you have a cold in China, you put on a mask, and that was right. has been the case forever. So. Yeah, I remember seeing pictures of... Um, uh, guitar shops in Tokyo in like 2011 and like everyone was wearing a mask. I'm like, what's going on? You know, what, why? Oh, it's just, you know, they're just careful. <laughs> um, it seemed quaint and funny at the time, but now it seems like quite a uh, useful impression. Um, so, but this, this, anyway, this, this, I, I have friends in China and I, you know, just, just as soon as, as, um, just four or five months ago, I remember them saying, you know, it's still dangerous to gather in large groups. So I'm curious, you know, when it's say the Guangzhou Philharmonic or is it, I don't know what it is, the Guangzhou Symphony, mm -hmm. when they play, how, how large is the hall that we're talking about that they're... What is the Guangzhou yeah. Symphony Hall? I would think around 3,000. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. a large hall. Okay. 
So, so that's, okay, so that's coming back. Yeah, it's coming back. Um, you know, there's also contact tracing and a lot of things that in the West we're less comfortable with. Right. But, you know, they're, they're figuring out how to make it work. They also just didn't have as, as large of an outbreak to start out with. They were the first, but it, it just was contained. Yeah. Early. Yeah. So I've heard. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what, do you have a, a prediction for such a, a kind of a ridiculous question, but at what point do we start to hear live music again in person uh, mm -hmm. in North America? Right. So we work with two summer festivals, Bravo Vale in Vale, Colorado, and Grand yep. Teton Music Festival in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Bravo Vale has an open outdoor amphitheater, and they were able already this summer to have nice. live music with audiences. Nice. They have a very large uh, amphitheater, and we had 250 people in this amphitheater. So you know, we were all spread out. We were all wearing masks and it was chamber music versus symphonic music to protect mm -hmm. musicians. But I, I believe that this will be the, the dimmer switch rather than a light switch going off and on. I think sure. we'll make gradual progress over time and people get more comfortable with giving up some freedoms in order to have a safe experience. Yeah. And we, as we progress with this, hopefully we'll, we'll find ways to do it. I would feel fine being in a concert, inside concert hall right now, if there was social distancing and if people had some level of commitment to temperature checking or mm -hmm. something along that line. So I think we will get there. It will be limited. The economics of it are challenging. Yeah. Yeah. If you have fewer people in the hall, obviously fewer mm -hmm. sales, Yeah. Um, sort of a macro question. So, so if you were to, um, if you had a magic wand and you could sort of, you know, change the way the arts are supported or um, uh, um, attended in, in the U.S., how, if at all, would you change the way that um, we approach the arts here? Mm, yeah, well, I studied in Vienna where the wonderful Vienna State Opera House would operate very much in the red if it, it didn't, wasn't supported by the government. Uh -huh. And they have a new opera every single night. That's a very expensive proposition, but I believe it's very central to culture and, and the, the place we live. So mm -hmm. I, I would like to see more government support, especially right now through this pandemic, it's been so frustrating for the Met to be closed down, for example, for all of these genius musicians who are at the top of their field to go, go to unemployment immediately and then not have any sort of safety net uh, yeah. from, from really the Met or, or the government. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's tragic because it's also controlled that they can't perform. So I, I'm, I'm not sure what people who have pursued this their entire life and they really, it would be a, a terrible shame for people at that level to give up music because they can't make ends meet. But right. I think that's what a lot of musicians are facing right now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah I, would, I would have more government support for large arts institutions and small arts institutions. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, I know many people who say, you know, it's basically a European model of supporting the arts. Um, what, just to play devil's advocate, I mean, there's, I've heard counter arguments such as, you know, your, your average graduate of a conservatory in, uh, let's say, Vienna, um, Austria or, or Germany might get a job, um, but the job itself won't be as, it, it will be a state-run job, it, it will be, you know, guaranteed income, but it won't necessarily be as high income as you might get in the U.S. if you were more entrepreneurial and you started your own music school or started your own program or, you know, music consult consultancy, for example. Um, is that just from, I mean, from your perspective, is there a fundamental flaw in that line of thinking? No, I think it's a very different feel. People pursue different career paths based on what's important to them. Stability is very important to a lot of people. Tremendous wealth is important to others. <laughs> and, you know, and you pursue different ways about your career based on, on what you prioritize. Yes. I think, you know, we could, we could really go down a rabbit hole with this one about healthcare and, <laughs> and, and everything else uh, that they, there are a lot of, of, of different lifestyle. Yeah. Is at play for a European musician versus an American musician? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you're absolutely right, and I definitely don't want to get into the, the healthcare side of things. I, 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 I just, um, I mean, if, yeah, I guess if we look at, you know, the, the smaller guitar festivals with which I'm involved, Boston Guitar Fest, URI Guitar Fest that you're going to be speaking at, um, these, it seems as though these are created by uh, individuals with an entrepreneurial spirit, um, and they're they, they raise the money essentially from benefactors for the, for the most part. They do get some money from the schools themselves. Um, and I'm not sure that that type of uh, festival is possible um, in Europe. Or if it, if it were to happen, it w I, guess it, I guess it would already be happening and it would be sort of, um, it'd be supported by the state, uh, but there wouldn't be an opportunity if you, you know, if you didn't happen to like that particular festival, there wouldn't be an opportunity to make a new one. Um, but, you know. Right. There is a lot to admire about the landscape of American classical music. One of the aspects that is most touching um, are the donors, the individual donors who give so generously to so many causes, yeah. um, which is, is a uniquely American trait. Um, and they, that that makes a lot of these different more entrepreneurial initiatives possible. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, how do you see the Chinese model in comparison to the, the United, you know, this, the model of the U.S. and the model in Europe? Is it more states support than, you know, we, you know, we would, okay, that's a yes? <laughs> a lot more state support, yes. Yeah. 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 And it's, and then in, in just in terms of um, <clears throat> audience levels, I've heard that there are larger audiences in general interested in classical music in, in mainland China, greater China, Taiwan these days. Is that supported by what you've seen or? Is For sure. I mean, I love the scalpers in classical <laughs> music in China. You know, there are scalpers outside of 
of halls. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and generally season tickets go right away when they are put up for sale. So it's, it's something that it's really exciting to see, but yeah. I, I always talk about how amazing it must've been in China after the cultural revolution to hear classical music for the first time. I don't remember the first time I heard of Beethoven symphony. I'm sure you probably don't either. No, no. <laughs> but I have Chinese friends who do actually remember the first time they heard a Beethoven symphony live mm -hmm. or even recorded. That's an amazing experience. And I think it's something we can learn from in the West to, to find that excitement. That's cool. Yeah. 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 And how about the infusion of Chinese classical music with Western classical music? Is that, does that happen? Or is when, when you book in Shanghai, Guangzhou, the big cities, Taiwan, the big countries, um, is it pure, like sort of the same music that we would hear here in the, in the U.S.? Or is it infused with, you know, Qigong or, you know, some of the classical Chinese instruments? There are some wonderful Chinese composers who've come up. Qigong Chen is, is amazing. He's, he's on our roster. He was Messian's last student. Uh, there, there are a lot of great young film composers that have, have come up in China. So China has found its voice. I think it, it took a while to have this lineage of music teachers happen, mm. uh, you know, because after, after the Cultural Revolution, they had to, to go through the first generation to go abroad and study abroad with big, big teachers, and then to hand that down to the next generation. And, and most of us in the West take our musical lineage somewhat for granted that, you know, my piano teacher studied with a great piano teacher who studied with a great piano teacher. And there's something that comes through the DNA to, to come to down the generations. So now that that is fully steeped, there's, there's just so much exciting Chinese music coming out too. It, it also goes in trends. Right now, it's a time when everybody's had to get more local because of travel and travel restrictions. So right now there's, there's more Chinese music being performed in Chinese halls, but generally the programming is, is fairly similar to Western programming with maybe one Chinese piece on a program. Actually, yeah. Okay, interesting, yeah. Um, so I wanna be respectful of your time. So anything about 8VA that I haven't touched on yet, we haven't really spoken very much about 8VA, but things that you want people to know about, about, about what you do and- Oh, yeah. I, I love what I do, I'm, I'm really lucky. We we work with some of the best musicians in the world and I can't believe I get to call them clients and friends and hear them all the time and be with them all the time. I was always a classical music super fan and loved getting autographs and having my CDs signed and, and that entire sort of uh, fanny type. <laughs> Or fangirl, yeah. Oh, yeah, fangirl. Yeah, I'm trying to not say groupie. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I feel very fortunate that for whatever reason, they rely on us for advice and rely on us for strategy and marketing and publicity. And 
that's really such a joy for me to to work with the great organizations and soloists we work with in in the next chapter there's a lot of really exciting innovation going on that's great so you know i think classical music is more vibrant than ever i think if anything this pandemic will make classical music stronger we we maybe were a little too precious about what we were putting out into the world and didn't want anything to be untarnished. Mm -hmm. So I like that idea. So we got out of this a, a little bit less, uh, um, uh, what, what's, what's you would use the word precious? Is that what you said? We come <laughs> out of this a, a little bit bolder, a little bit more willing to make mistakes maybe, um, and play in different places, play different types of pieces. Um, and hopefully there's approachable. Yeah. Make the music itself more approachable. Yeah. yeah. And the people. And the people, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I was looking at just in you know looking at your client list and seeing that you had Long Long. I was looking at some of the more recent uh, YouTube videos that he had, and there's the the songbook, which is, I mean, it's in some ways sort of the definition of approachable. It's like, hey, you know, I'm going to play the pieces that everybody knows, um, and it, it's. I think there's something beautiful about that because I when he described the fact that as a you know growing up playing piano, he couldn't find the musicians that he most admired playing the songs that he knew most or was learning, meaning, you know, the, the classics of the classics, as it were, um, because it's sort of frowned upon to do so, that he decided to do that so that people can hear him play those pieces, you know, when they want to have a reference point. Um, that to me is a, is a, a worthy, um, endeavor. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's a little bit different from what you're saying, I think, because it's, it's more falling back to what's um, already accepted as opposed to, you know, pushing the limits and the boundaries and um, which I also, you know, welcome and love to see. Um, I had this great New York moment two nights ago. We were walking down the street and there were buskers playing Darth Vader theme down the street. Uh, a tuba and trumpet and just loudly jamming. Nice. And then they were marching down and playing, being a little obnoxious really, but everybody was into it. It was Friday night. And one of the outdoor restaurants had a singer outside singing. Nice. And they didn't realize, and they just kept on marching into her performance. <laughs> da, 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 da. And then they realized that they just ruined her beautiful <laughs> background dinner music and teamed up. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. And, and became her jam band, her background jam band. And I thought, this is a little bit of what classical music needs. Yeah. Need to just have fun. Mm -hmm and be approachable and happy coincidences. And it doesn't need to be so perfect. It needs to be accessible where people can enjoy it and appreciate perfection when it does happen, but, but also have, have an entrance into to the, the genre that we love so much. Yes. That's a great place to, to, to sort of wrap. I, I've, I've found that that is the, that spirit is very much in the URI Guitar Fest. So both with uh, first with Derek Ripper, who was my first guest on the podcast, 
and then also with Elliot Fisk. I don't know if you've had the pleasure to hear him live, but he, he really he's he's very approachable. He's he, he really just he just plays the out of that guitar, <laughs> and uh, it's fun to watch live. I mean, he's he's not a perfectionist, as, as in like you know he's going to hit every note, but he's going to play every note with uh, gusto and zeal, um, and, and that's fun to watch. So that that's something that it, for me that that's one of the hallmarks of the URI Guitar Fest is Adam sort of picks musicians who are a little bit more gutsy um, to play. So. Yes, I look forward to speaking at it, and I am. I'm a huge fan and friend of Adam's, so I, I'm really excited about it. And I'm excited to, to speak with people about building a career in music. It's something that I'm so lucky to live a life in, and I, I don't think there, there would have been any other way for me. Uh, and I, I hope that I can, can help in any way I can. Well, hats off to you for, for making it work, and hats off to you for helping others uh, to go in that direction. So. I really appreciate the time, and I'm looking forward to hearing you speak at the, at the Guitar Fest and hearing what you'll we'll be there. I'll, I'll be there. Yeah, I'll be there slash here. I'll be connected virtually somehow. Yes. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Great. All right. Patricia, great Thank to meet you. Thank you for your time. We are about to wrap things up here at the More Art Than Science podcast. But before we do, allow me to beseech you. If you like this podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Doing so helps others find the show, which in turn helps the artists that I interview find more fans, which in turn helps fill the world with more and better music. Do your bit. Okay, so you heard it from Patricia Price, who I'm not sure has the right to give me the right to play this particular song, but um, I will give a plug to Alex Ross and his book, Listen to This, which I absolutely love, along with um, his, uh, his other book on music called The Rest is Noise. Um, uh, Listen to This features a long um, uh, description of Radiohead and their music and their one of their tours, um, and it includes uh, an, an homage of sorts to the song Pyramid Song from Amnesiac. So that's going to be our outro music tonight. Thanks a lot for listening.
the 